Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. Like other idols in this series, power in and of itself is not a bad thing. But at what point does power become an idol? And when do we put power above God? You're listening to Modern Day Idols, Power by Reverend Peter Yonker. Bible reading this morning comes from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 16. I'll be reading verses 1 through 16. As we continue our sermon series on modern day idols, and as you've probably caught on by now, today's idol is power. And, and let me remind you, which is true of all the idols, the idols are not in and of themselves bad. Idols are good things, God-created things that are put in an improper place and usually raised too high. Same thing with power, right? Human beings are meant to have power. At creation, God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So we're supposed to make culture. God gives us power, but the question is, how do we use it? And for that question, we turn to Genesis 16. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. So go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah had said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai's wife took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. Abram slept with Hagar and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, said Abram. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. And the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He'll be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who had spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That's why the well is called Ber Lahai Roy. It's still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave him the name Ishmael to the son he has born, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. This is the word of the Lord. So as I read this story, and maybe as you read it too, 
There's one question that, that leaps out at me, and that question is, what in heaven's name was Sarah thinking? What in heaven's name was Sarah thinking offering her servant to Abraham to produce a child? In what universe did she think that this would turn out well for her family? I have a second question, closely related to the first. What in heaven's name was Abraham thinking, saying yes to this proposition? Why did he think that doing this would somehow improve the relationship with his wife and within his household? This was possibly the worst idea in all of Scripture. So what were Abram and Sarah thinking? I, I think I know. They were thinking, I really, really, really want a baby. I really want a child. I want an heir. And I have been waiting so, so long. It's been 11 years since Abram and Sarai left their home in Ur, and they left in great hope. They left under the, the sunshine of promises. God had come to Abram and made him a fabulous promise, and Abram had gone to Sarai and said, Sarai, we have to leave home because God has told me something tremendous. He's going to show us a land. He's going to bring us to that land, and then he's going to give us children. Children, Sarai, like the stars in the sky. We'll be a nation. It'll be wonderful. Let's go. And so they do. They pack up their stuff. They live in tents and they start this nomadic life. And every single night at dinner time, when they're finishing up their meal, Abram would pray the same prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for your great promises to us. Fulfill those promises, we pray. Give us land, give us a child, amen. Week after week, day after day, he prayed this prayer. That was 11 years since he first started praying it. Do you know how much land they had after 11 years? Zero. Do you know how many children they had? Zero. And Sarah's biological clock was ticking. No. Sarah's biological clock was ticked. There was nothing left. The last grain of sand had fallen through the hourglass. She was 86 years old and had no hope in herself for a child. When people mentioned the possibility of offspring for her, she literally laughed at them. And sometimes, if she were honest, she had a hard time suppressing laughter at night during Abram's prayer. So Abram and Sarah are desperate, and they do what desperate people do. They did a desperate thing. They tried to give the promise a push. They tried to take hold of the wheel from God and push on the accelerator. To put it another way, Sarah took Hagar and held, it out, held her out to Abram and said, Here, Abram, why don't you take a bite of this? And Abram took a bite. Now, if you're hearing Adam and Eve references in the way I phrase that, that's on purpose. Because I want you to think of the story of Adam and Eve when you think of the story of Abram, Sarah, and Hagar. Because the author of Scripture wants you to see that story. There are echoes of those two stories. Those two stories are related. In verse 2, it says that Abram agreed to what his wife had said. But if you look back in the original Hebrew, the language is something more like he heeded the voice of his wife. 
That's exactly the same language you find in Genesis when what Eve does with respect to, or what Adam does with respect to Eve. He heeds the voice of his wife. And then it says that Sarai took Hagar and gave it to Adam. Again, the same sort of Hebrew structure of the sentence that when Eve took the apple and gave it to Adam. Okay, so you're meant to think of the Adam and Eve story when you're reading those sentences. And there's a good reason for that because they're spiritually parallel. In both stories, you have people who are impatient with the way God is doing things and try to speed things up. Adam and Eve are walking with God every day. They're being trained and discipled by God to become more mature as people. But then the snake comes to them and says, hey, you don't need to go through that long education process. Just take this apple and you know the difference between good and evil. Bam, instant gratification. And so they take it. In our story, the same thing. And waiting so long, you don't need to wait anymore. Just take Hagar, instant gratification, instant ancestors, instant promise. The results of both stories are also the same. What do Adam and Eve do when they get caught? Point fingers, snipe at each other. What happens in this story? When it goes badly, they're pointing fingers and sniping at each other. Two stories where human beings try to take the wheel and press on the accelerator, and take over the driving, and they prove they're not very good at driving. They crash the car. Today's idol is power. Power, what happens to human beings when we try to take the wheel and drive for God? And power is a complicated and a special kind of idol because it's what Tim Keller calls a deep idol, which means it's an idol that often pairs with other surface idols. Okay, so sometimes you might think a person's idol is sex or money or success, but really the deep idol of this person, or in addition to that other idol, they're also worshiping the idol of power. And Keller gives a really good example of how that works. He talks about a friend he knew in college, or an acquaintance more than a friend. And when this guy was an undergrad in college, he was a player, okay? He loved to seduce other college girls. He worked hard at it. And what was worse about it is that what would happen is he'd work at seducing them, and once he seduced them, off they went, and he went on to the next one, okay? So that shows you it wasn't about the sex, it was about the conquest, it was about the power for him. Towards the end of college, Keller says, this guy became a Christian. Praise the Lord, he stopped his womanizing ways, okay? And even he got so serious about his faith, he started to enter into ministry. And he started to attend Bible studies and started to to go to seminary. Only in seminary, he was exactly the same way with his classes as he was with the women, in that if he was in a Bible study, he would try to take it over and lead it, even if it wasn't his to lead. And if he was in a class, he was aggressive and dismissive, and he tried to put down the other students who disagreed with him. Okay? He was always trying to prove he was the smartest guy in the room, which showed he'd given up his surface idol, but that idol right underneath it, power, was still completely in place. How do we define the idolatry of power? How do we define power idolatry? How about this? Power becomes an idol for us when we reject God's means and God's timing and try to choose our own means 
and our own timing. This is, incidentally, why power will work with other idols, okay? It's, it's, most idols are about the end, right? We're aiming at something. But power is about means and timing, the methods we choose and the schedule we choose. We reject God's methods, we reject God's schedule, we want to do things in our way and in our time. That's definitely what's happening in the story of Abram and Sarai, right? They don't like God's timing. 11 years is way too long. They try to speed things up. They don't like God's means because Sarah's 86 years old and it doesn't seem like she can have a baby. And so they try to adopt their own timing, their own means, and they grab Hagar. That's a pattern you see throughout Scripture. Story of the golden calf, same thing, right? The Israelites have been in the desert a long, 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 long time, and they're getting impatient. And now Moses is up on the mountain talking with God, and and they don't know how long he's going to be. They're totally sick of it. They look for an idol, something that will give them instant religious gratification. They try to change God's timing. Story of the prodigal son, same dynamic. The son is sick of his father's old ways and his conservative ways on the farm. He says, forget this, I want my inheritance, which is a good goal. I mean, the inheritance is eventually owed him, but he doesn't want the timing and he doesn't want the means, so he tries to grab it now. Takes hold of the wheel and, as you know, crashes the car. It happens again and again. And if I may be so bold... It's not so surprising that we human beings try to change the timing and the means and that we take hold of the wheel of power because often in our lives, in the nitty-gritty of our lives, it is hard to accept God's timing and God's means. God's timing and God's means can be very, very hard for us to understand in the ordinary circumstances of life. God's means, sacrificial love, right? The way of the cross. Jesus, as he goes to his crucifixion, explicitly rejects other kinds of power, right? He could have called down 10,000 legions of angels. He says, nope, I'm going to die for the people who are spitting on me, right? Sacrificial love is the way he chooses. But there are times in our life when we look at the problems of the world and the problems in ourselves, and we think, you know, Lord, I could use 10,000 legions of angels. 10,000 legions of angels would be really great right now. It's hard to accept the sacrificial path. And God's timing is slow. Sanctification is slow, which is why you hear in the Old Testament, the prophets and the psalmist cry out, how long, O Lord? Why is this taking so long? Job, David, Lord, this is taking so long. I'm I'm trying so hard, but my family is suffering. My, my, My son has depression. My wife is struggling with anxiety. I'm a good person. I pray every night. I'm faithful to you. Why, why, why is this taking so long? When you realize how hard it is to accept those things, you begin to realize that that the idol of power is not just something that's um, dangerous for CEOs or presidents or prime ministers, but the idol of power is something that tempts us in the ordinary things of our life. A parent is frustrated with his children. They're hyperactive, busy, they don't always listen, and he's doing his best to raise them. But then one night, He comes home from work, and it's been a hard day, and he comes in, and he pours himself a drink, and he's about to drink it, and the kids are just running around, and he tells them to stop. They don't listen, and one of the kids bumps into him, and 
the drink goes all over him. And just for a second, he knows he's supposed to be patient. He knows he's supposed to be loving as a parent. But just for a second, he grabs the kid's shoulder and he shakes the kid and says, why did you do that? Why are you always like this? Why are you so clumsy? He tries a different kind of power. And it works. Like the kid is, <gasps> stops. In the short term, it works. But in the long term, when he grabbed the wheel, he has done real damage. Another story. Remember years ago, this is probably 30 years ago now, uh, my wife and I were talking to friends of ours who were in grad school at the time and were far away. And we were talking about church because that's what ministers like to talk about. And we asked them, well, how do you like the church you're going to out there? And they said, oh, we like it. But we're, you know, we're a little worried about the minister. And apparently the, the minister had a bit of an impatient temperament. He was a good preacher, he was good at things, but he was impatient with the, the, the rate of sanctification of the people in the pew, which I, have, I cannot possibly relate to. I, I don't know why he would ever feel that way. I feel that about myself, but that's a different thing. But okay, so he's impatient with it, right? It just, it's, he wanted things to go faster. So one day he was... He was preaching his sermon, and as you do sometimes in a sermon, you say, oh, you know, there's a really good story in Luke 10 that illustrates this. Could you all take out your Bibles and turn to Luke 10, and we'll look at that together? Well, only about five people in the entire congregation reached for the Bibles. And the minister saw that, and he just, he lost it, and he said, what's the matter with you people? This isn't television, come on! Okay, so just for a second, he grabbed at a different kind of power. Did it work in the short term? Yeah, absolutely. Everybody grabbed their Bible after that. But what happens in the long term? For our friends and for others, there's this damage of trust. There's this sense of impatience. There's a sense that maybe this person isn't completely safe. Do you know what's at the very bottom? The idolatry of power. It's a deep fear that God's not going to do anything. Ultimately, we seize the idol of power because we've stopped believing, like Abram and Sarah, that God's going to do anything. And we look around in the world and we see all these other people who are grabbing and pushing and getting somewhere, and so we get sick of it and we say, we just start grabbing and pushing, we join in. We give up on Jesus and we choose Barabbas. Pontius Pilate brings Jesus out and says, behold your king. And we say, we have no king but Caesar. That's the only power we understand. Send him away. When we grasp the idol of power, when people around us grasp the idol of power, they look strong. They look confident. They look like they're swaggering, but inside they're afraid and they're alone and they don't think they have any hope in this world. Abram and Sarah, in their fear and their loneliness, make a terrible mistake. They make a mess. They're fighting with each other at home. It's worse for Hagar. She's a pregnant single woman out in the middle of a desert. This is a death sentence. And Abram and Sarah don't do anything to try to clean up the mess. But God does. He sends an angel into the middle of the desert. That angel comes alongside of Hagar 
and speaks tenderly to her and gives her promises and gives her blessings. Blessings and promises on a situation that should never have been. This, this situation should never have happened, but God still moves towards this busted situation and uses blessing and promise to bend it towards his ends. He works it out towards the good. It's what God always does. It's what God always does. It's what he does most quintessentially 2,000 years ago. When he comes into the middle of our mess, which isn't just a little unwanted pregnancy, it's a big steaming, burning dump of wreckage for all the times we human beings have tried to take the wheel and drive ourselves. And it's accumulated throughout the centuries. And God sends not, not an angel to this situation this time, but his only son. And his son goes into the middle of the dump and he dies for us. He pours out his sacrificial love. He pours out his love. And by the power of his spirit, and the power of his grace, by a power that is made perfect in weakness, by a power that takes the form of a servant, obedient even unto death, by a power that is the strongest thing in the world, the power of sacrificial love, our Lord is slowly, slowly making all things new. How do we guard ourselves against taking the idol of power in our stressful moments? Historically, we Christians have practiced what we would call the passive disciplines. There are two kinds of disciplines that we practice. There's active disciplines. Those are disciplines where we do something. So like prayer and Bible reading, those are Christian disciplines. We call those active disciplines because when you pray or when you, when you read your Bible, you're doing something. The Spirit's working with you, but you're active. Passive disciplines are the ones where you don't do anything, and that is the point of the discipline, that you stop. So Sabbath, one day out of seven, you stop, and you stop trying to accomplish things and gird up your house and your life, and you just receive the grace of God. And Sabbath is about many things, but one of the chief things Sabbath teaches us is that we are not in charge, God is, and it's going to be okay, right? Another discipline which we don't practice very much, which does the same thing, silence. Just as a Christian to sit for 10 minutes every day and just be completely quiet. And don't think about what you got to do today or your troubles. Try to think about the good things God has put into your life. Just feel the grace of your life. Feel the grace of your breath coming in and out of your chest and the warmth of your hands and the love of God that surrounds you. And maybe hear the voice of Jesus say to you, I see you. I am here. I have always been here. I always will be here. And there's absolutely nothing that can take you out of my hand. That is the truth of our life. When we seize the idol of power, for a moment, we think the truth of our life is that the only thing between us and our problems is the strength of our own hands. That is a lie and a terrible, lonely lie. The truth is we belong to Jesus and he will never let us go. And his kingdom is already here. And it's a kingdom that we don't have to seize like champions. It's a kingdom that we receive like children. Beloved children, 
of a father who knows our names. To him be the kingdom, power, and the glory forever. Amen. Lord, you know that every single person in this room here, including me, have places in our life where we're anxious and we're tempted to, to take the wheel and overmanage and overperform and use power that is not yours. Lord, thank you that at least on today in this place, we can sit quiet before you. We can be still and know that you are God and that we can rest in the eternal hope of that. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.